RadioInfluence.com. You are sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of Sitting Ringside. My name is David Penzer. We are so happy you are here once again to listen to this thing we call a podcast. Apologies for being MIA last week. The flu is still actually kicking my ass, but kicked it pretty well last week to the point where I couldn't even get off the couch for like six days and finally got off the couch, drug myself to the walking clinic, and they said I had a sinus infection, but I'm still feeling not great. So uh, it's one of those things that goes around, but I do apologize for missing a week of sitting ringside. The week before, lots of reaction to my interview with Buff Bagwell, a story about uh, his confirming that Eric wanted him to die in a plane crash before Halloween Havoc went viral and uh, got a lot of reaction to that. Dave Meltzer jumped in and gave uh, his memorances of the story and uh, just found out that uh, on After 83 Weeks with Christy Olsen, uh, we just heard back from the boss. He tells his side of the story. So since we broke it, let's find out the rest of the story. I want to start off with a fan question that you maybe didn't get to this week. This one's from Ryan Harry, and he's wondering if there's any truth to the story Buff Bagwell recently shared about you wanting to have him die and come back as a ghost. <laughs> you recall this one? Yeah, well, <laughs> it's another one of those, <clears throat> I hate to call bullshit, but oh. I used to have an airplane. I, I was a pilot. And my instrument rating as a pilot, I had my own airplane as a pilot. Everybody knew I flew around a lot. So I had, when I orchestrated that death by airplane, it was my death. It wasn't Bagwell's. Uh. Now, Mark may have a story where he thought maybe he was going to be one of the guys on the plane or something like that. But in order for that story to have worked, it would have had to have been plausible. And the audience knew that I had my own plane. The audience knew that I did a lot of flying right around the southern Arizona-Mexico border. And my original plan was for me to crash in Mexico because I knew it would take at least four or five days to get any news out of Mexico. So I was going to fake my crash in Mexico, and I was going to show up oh at Halloween Havoc. And, and perhaps I shared it with Bagwell after the fact because, by the way, my wife didn't know. It wasn't until the last minute when I told Harvey Schiller, because I was a technically an officer of Turner Broadcasting, mm-hmm. so, and it was a publicly held company, so I had to kind of divulge it, much to my chagrin, which I wouldn't have. But Harvey shut it down. But I can tell you definitively, if Bagwell was going to be on a plane, it was an incidental effect, not, not the major storyline. Wow, and what a storyline that would have been. Man. Awesome. <laughs> um, uh, the first question but, of the uh, wouldn't let me do it because they were so afraid that an executive dying in a plane crash that ended up with being being a hoax would actually affect their stock prices. So that's why they wouldn't let me do it. So first of all, thanks to the After 83 Weeks podcast for the plug. <laughs> no plug. But uh, interesting, Eric. I, you know, I, part of me thought that Eric would just say, ah, that never happened. But uh because uh, it was so controversial, but uh, apparently 
Uh, Eric confirms that there was going to be a death in a plane crash. Uh, we just had the wrong person, or maybe we had his passenger. Interesting, interesting stuff. And uh, it's fun to break it on sitting ringside as we try to get to the bottom of all these big wrestling stories. Today, we're going to get to the bottom of who was Tornado 2 and why did he need a 60-second intro before his music ever even played in South Africa. My guest this week is second-generation wrestler from South Africa. His father was a wrestling promoter, and we'll get into Tornado 2 and that whole thing. And I believe we even have the audio of this unbelievable ring entrance. The only thing I could compare it to is if you've ever seen the movie The One and Only with Henry Winkler, they had some ridiculous intro when Henry Winkler was playing Gorgeous George. By the way, that's a great movie. If, if you are a wrestling fan and you've never seen The One and Only, uh, I'm sure that's available on all kinds of platforms. I suggest that you check that out. But that's, that, that's a great movie, one of my favorite wrestling theme movies of all time. But uh, without further ado, I want to bring on my new friend. Just uh, riding in the car with him a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I heard him tell some stories and said, Hey, PJ, be on my podcast. You can talk. So here we are. Welcome to Darewolf, PJ Black. So it's interesting how the wrestling business works. Uh, happened to be uh, doing an indie show in Atlanta and uh, shared a ride with a couple of the guys that were going to the t- uh, town and uh, happened to be sitting in the back seat next to my next guest who was telling some interesting stories. And I said, hey, if uh, you got interesting stories, I got a podcast. So uh, let's uh, let's get together. And uh, so he is... Uh, Ring of Ounce, Ring of Honor, excuse me, star now officially signed, the Darewolf PJ Black. Welcome to City Ringside. Glad to have you, man. Oh, man, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it, was, it was great uh, talking to you in the car, and uh, maybe now we can tell some stories on the podcast. Sure. So so I looked, uh, did a little um, research for this interview, and... You had an interesting childhood, to say the least. Uh, your dad was a wrestler in South Africa uh, and, uh, I believe, owned the territory or owned a territory. Uh, how, how, how old were you when this all started, and what's your earliest memory of the pro wrestling business? Oh, wow. Some of my earliest memories ever since I can remember, you know. I remember being eight or nine years old, and, you know, I was always, like, messing around in the ring during intermission and stuff like that. And I remember one of the top stars at that time, which we'll probably get through, his name was Tornado. He used to wear this white mask, you know, and it was one of the only masked guys in the, in the territory. And he gave us a couple of masks. And it was me and my other friend. And we, I think we were nine or ten at the time. And during intermission, we just put on a, a little match, you know, like just messing around in the ring. And I remember like a thousand people gave us a standing ovation. And I think that's where the bug got me. That's why I decided I wanted to be a wrestler. Wow. So what is pro wrestling back in those days in South Africa look like compared to, say, you know, WWE or, or Impact Wrestling or Ring of Honor? Is it a territory? Do you guys have different cities every every uh, uh, night or is it more of a monthly thing? Did you have TV? Just like kind of an overview so people could kind of understand what you grew up around. Okay, uh, in the in the 80s, early 90s, it, it was considered an unofficial territory, you know, because, like, I mean, guys like Fitzfinney and, and Rigo, uh, guys like that used to come stay there for six, seven, eight, nine months at a time. And also, I remember being a kid, seeing Hogan come job to our champion. I saw Andre the Giant come job to our champion. You know, there was no dirt sheets or internet back then, so nobody knew of this. And I remember that as a kid. 
vividly. Uh, and going to the shows with my dad, it's hard to say what year it was, but I've been going to shows with my dad ever since that happened. Um, and then in 99, my, my father got shot. He passed away and wrestling pretty much died. Everyone expected me to take over the territory, but I was an 18-year-old kid at the time, and all I wanted to do was be a wrestler. I didn't want to be a promoter. I didn't want to be anything else but a wrestler. So I kind of packed my bags, um, just left the country, moved to Europe, started backpacking, soul-searching, looking for myself, and, you know, still wrestling on weekends in Europe on the, on the circuit. So, yeah, wrestling kind of in South Africa kind of died down. 99, there was a few other promotions who started up here and there. There's a, a few small promotions like in the south and the north which maybe run like one show a month but they maybe run one show every six months a bigger show which i'll which i'm trying to actually set up myself right now at some of the casinos because wrestling has a huge following it's just sad that there's not a, a local scene anymore there we had a tv deal for about three years or so and two, between 2005 and 2008 there was a national uh, television deal, which is huge, actually. And that's actually the three years that I moved back to South Africa to be on this t television show. And that's where WWE actually picked me up from. Oh, wow. You put it in a nice little neat package right to WWE. I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> so so, uh, so, how did your dad get involved in it? You know, it's hard enough to get involved in the pro wrestling business, or it was at least back in the day in the States, you know, where there's 25 territories. How did he get in involved in uh, in the pro wrestling business in, in, Austra in, in Australia, in South Africa? <laughs> my, my dad was a, a very um, famous uh a Greco-Roman wrestler, actually. Um, many, many world championships. He beat a lot of, like, judo guys. Before MMA was a thing, you know, remember they used to put, like, swingers guys versus wrestlers versus judo guys, and he used to beat all these guys. Um, multiple world champion. In 19... Was it 81 or 82? I forgot, but South Africa was boycotted to the, the Olympic Games. So my dad never got to go to the Olympic Games, and that frustrated him more than anything because he was set to win the gold medal. I think the... the the Russian guy who did win the gold medal, my dad beat him at the world championships. So obviously he was, he was livid. So, um, he was a, he was a, a lawyer at the time too. And he was just fed up with everything, you know, like that was his dream. Like he wanted to go to the Olympic games and, uh, kind of like pro, one of the pro wrestling local guys saw him cause he was obviously a phenomenal athlete. And that's how he got his start in the business. And he started like training and he, he loved it. Um, you know, like he loved the character stuff, the gimmick stuff, and he was a natural athlete. So he kind of just got into it. And then within a few years after that, he took over the territory because he started a sports promotion. Because the guy at the time was a Willie, Willie Cooney, who was, I don't know if you can remember the Simpsons, two famous South African brothers in the Von Eric era. Yeah, Steve's, yeah Steve's the Simpson brothers. Yeah, yeah, so their dad was the promoter there, but when they moved to the U.S. full-time, ah. the dad kind of like gave that promotion up, and my dad took over that territory from, from him. Oh, that makes sense. All right, I, I get it now. And he was the, your dad was the Pink Panther, correct? Yes, sir. Pink, pink, <laughs> he, he, a heel his whole life. <laughs> pink cars, pink houses, if I, if I, if I heard correctly. Uh, I'll never... Everything, which, which, is funny, which is funny because it's a, it's, a, it's a gimmicky character, right? But he was a... He was a hooker. He was a shooter. So it was funny because people never took him seriously. And uh, I've seen him take so many people. I've stretched so many people. It was, it was, it was funny, including myself. Like, he stretched me many, many times as a kid. And I think that's what made me tough. Almost sounds like a Kurt Angle story. When you got to meet Kurt, did you see a little bit of your dad in, in Kurt's story? I, I did a little bit. Kurt and, and even more so Fit Finley. 
So Sammy had a, a, he was an uh, amateur wrestler, but he was a, you know, he was a, a tough guy uh, that that a lot of people like messed with. My dad was also one of the guys in South Africa. If you anyone from my era or before, if you ask them who was their first match in South Africa, and it was always my dad. It was kind of like a tradition when you broke into the business, you had to wrestle my dad, including myself, actually. Oh wow! So did he? he so he hooked uh, hooked on you a little bit when you were a kid. Taught you. So you're having a bit of a shooter background, correct? A, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I still struggle against like these modern day jujitsu guys and stuff like that. But uh, I know all the dirty tricks. I can. <laughs> <laughs> in an unsanctioned fight, I can. I can hold my own. So your dad brought in like Andre the Giant and Hulk Hogan and 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 big names like that. Uh, how, that, was, that was that was that was Willie Cooney. That was right before my dad took over. Ah, I got you. But but you you were around that. Yes, yes, I went to those shows. Any cool Andre stories from when you were a kid? Oh, I was like, I was like six or seven at the time. I don't, oh, I don't remember. I remember, I remember watching him. Like, I know my dad was on the car too that night, and that's why I went to the show. And obviously, I stayed for the main event. But that's that. that I, did, I wasn't even in the locker room for that show. I was just mainly at the show. <laughs> I just find it, I find it fascinating because we've had a lot of second and third generation wrestlers on the show. A lot of them, sons of promoters, Jeff Jarrett, the Funk Brothers, have both been on, uh, and and many more. And uh, and your your story, while it's the same, is just like you know you take it and you put it in South Africa, a whole different culture, and and uh, and 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 I don't know. For to me, that seems uh, that seems fascinating. So I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I did look online, and you mentioned Tornado Two. I'm wondering. I, I saw a match with your dad, the Pink Panther, and Tornado Two. That's on YouTube as a ring announcer. I, you know, I kind of like him just, I, I pay attention to ring announcements and, you know, the, the ring announcer was like in this corner, Pink Panther. And then he proceeded to give like a 60 second intro, like you would intro the president of the world, you know, the highest flyer, the biggest testosterone machine. <laughs> when he hits you with the moon salt, it was one of those things like you'd see in the, in a movie. There's a movie called the one and only, I don't know if you ever saw it with Henry Winkler yep. years ago. And like, yep. he, he it was like sort of a takeoff of of gorgeous George, and that's the only thing I could uh, compare it to is uh, is 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 the you know the description of you know, and this is before the guy even came out. Your poor dad's in the ring, and you're, this guy, this is he gets this whole big intro, and then his music hits. Ladies and gentlemen, the Pink Panther. That doesn't look to me like the same guy that was talking to us down here. going places, it's this tiger. He's everyone's favorite, and a spell in the ring gets the blood, and I hasten to eat to add the hormones going. He's a whirlwind of energy with adrenaline pumping in every vein. Once this chap pulls a moonsalto or the famous kamikaze dive, well, he's made it his own, it's tickets. His strength and acrobatic set him apart from many other wrestlers in the professional ring. We call him the Wild Thing. Ladies and gentlemen, at 110 kilograms, let's hear it for South Africa's masked sensation, Tornado 2! So tell me about Tornado 2. I'm assuming he's a big star. He was a big star at that time. Um, obviously, that when my dad took over a few of the territories, actually, 
Tornado One, who was a top guy at the time, who was due to not to be Donnie Brits, who was a top guy, but they needed someone to fill that gap. They needed a, we needed a top draw, you know, like uh, Jan Wilkins, which was the, the champion at the time that Hogan job to and Andre and stuff like that. But we needed a, a big star. So I guess he was like our Hogan, our Cena at the time. So my dad built him as that. My dad booked him as that. And my dad worked him like almost every night, putting him over, building this character, you know, because he, he was a guy at that time when no one was doing high-flying moves in South Africa. He was a guy to do that, but which was funny. My dad actually taught him all that moves. My dad could do anything under the sun, even though it didn't look like by his body type, but uh, he never did it in the ring, you know, so he trained this kid to kind of like take over, which was... Um, which was great at the time because he was a big draw all over South Africa, huge draw, but it also made his ego really big. And, you know, like him and my dad had a bunch of fallouts uh, behind closed doors, which was fascinating because they still had to wrestle every night, which made it very entertaining because my dad was like, you know, I can shoot Penny in three seconds if I wanted to, which he did multiple times. And <laughs> you'd see the guy grab the mic and be like, no, I want a rematch right now. My dad would just walk to the back because he was a promoter. He didn't care. He was like, showering and this guy was cut this 10 minute long promo and he's like listen i can i can i can shoot pin you in three seconds if i wanted to i'm making you the star so <laughs> just like but yeah he was a big star at the time he was a big draw i mean i like as a kid i looked looked up to him i still do a bunch of his spots till this day um he's, he's a little bit older now he's like in his 50s or so he'll do like one or two matches he'll do some international tours and i'll see him and you know he's a, he's, he's still a good dude you know, it, it amazes me how this business works. And, and, you know, a lot of times in the current day professional wrestling, we get caught up in uh, wins and losses and who's over and who's not. And, and uh, you know, fans booing Roman Reigns and stupid stuff like that, which, you know, hey, I shouldn't say stupid. I mean, if it's, the fans care about it, it's not stupid because they're the ones who pay. But uh, right. but you get so caught up in that. And my point is, is that I would I would definitely uh encourage any of the listeners to go to google uh the pink panther versus tornado 2 uh and 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 the reason being not only to see your father in action but the reason being is to see your father who was the who was the man who was in charge of the territory who could have had an ego the size of uh johannesburg because of he, he should have been an olympic champion quite frankly and and didn't care because he knew that he was trying to make money and it was a business didn't care that that he was like oh here's the pig panther in this corner and then the, the guy he was making uh you know making as the promoter uh had had a uh, a declaration like uh, the king of uh, england so uh so it's just it's just interesting you know people tend to forget that this is a business and uh and 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 that's just it's, it's i would suggest uh without bantering too much anymore any longer suggest checking that match out because it just really shows what this business is all about because like you said your dad could have and did many times put him down in 30 seconds but he was doing what for the common good and that's right really right and he was and he was a he was a, he was an entertainer he was an athlete but more than that he was a business Businessman, and that's why he started the, the sports agency, which you know, like branched out to like an entertainment company, which put on wrestling shows and kickboxing shows at the time. And even like he was a manager of a couple of local musical talent. You know, he was a businessman. Like that. That's one of the the, the things I remember most of him is just his brain, how it worked. Like you know, he was just always just grinding and like hustling and making money. You know, like and the net, the, the wrestling stuff, the athletic stuff came natural to him, and the, the character stuff and. I wish there was more stuff online online because he has so many unique little things that he did that I'm trying to like bring back right now and 
you know, I, I also tried to Google it the other day, and it was only the, the one or two matches I could find. But uh, I know Tornado is still active here and there, and I, I cannot wait when you post this podcast to send it to him. He's going to get a kick out of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're actually going to we're going to try to post the uh, the introduction uh, in between our conversation here. But I, I definitely awesome. think uh, suggest that people Google it uh, because it just it shows the old school mentality of the business. And you know, so and a fan might say to you, "Yeah, you were in WWE," and we'll get there. We're in WWE, Justin Gabriel, and, you know, they didn't really, you know, didn't really do all that much with you at the end. Were you frustrated? And and I can't say if you were or not because, you know, everybody, it's, you know, everybody has pride in themselves. But, you know, I, I would imagine that you'd look back on your dad, you know, letting the Tornado 2 be the superstar uh, and, and, and not let it really, you know, let it roll off your, your skin a little bit than most uh, wrestlers. Yeah, no, totally. I mean... Obviously, in my time in WWE, there was some creative issues and differences, and I wanted to do more because I know I'm capable of more. And at that time, it just couldn't give me any more. So, you know, like when when I did quit, like Vince was like, "I know what you want to do. You know, maybe you should just go do it." And you know, he, he knew I wanted to go to Japan, and that was more my style. Um, and you know, like that's actually that was actually my main goal growing up in South Africa was the was New Japan. Like the, I've always been fascinated with a strong style. But I, and I tried for years and years to get into Japan, but it was hard for a kid with a third world country passport to get in there. And, you know, when the WWE deal came along, obviously I took it, you know. Um, sure. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's, I could tell you a bunch of stories of WWE days. But I, you know, I feel like, I, I know I'm, I'm like 37 this year, but I, I feel like I'm, I, I haven't even like hit my, my peak in, in, in wrestling yet. So I'm, I'm very excited for the next few years to come. Yeah, under contract to Ring of Honor, uh, as I understand it. So, uh, move, get, moving back a little bit, uh, who were your influences in uh, Florida Championship Wrestling? I know that's where WWE sent you to really, uh, uh, and, and so many, if you look at the names from back then, so many uh, guys that were in Florida Championship Wrestling with you have gone on, uh, become huge names in this business. So who were your influences back then? Uh, you mean the, the, the guys with me in the territory or the guys before me? Well, either the guys who taught you or the guys that you were that you came up with. Oh wow, so many! Yeah, all the guys that I came up with, like the guys that were in Nexus with me, like the season one of NXT. Um, also, uh, guys like the Usos that I'm really close with, uh, Seth Rollins, Dean Ambrose, Roman Reigns. They were all there right, right as I made it to TV. They were kind of transitioning into FCW. That's when it was kind of transitioning into NXT at the time. Um, yeah, I was probably. In my 20 years of wrestling, that was probably the most fun I've ever had. Because So I moved to the U.S., FCW, just wrestling every day, getting paid to wrestle every single day. I didn't own a car. I didn't have a, uh, any payments to make on phones or, you know, like I didn't have rent to pay. I legit, they, they, they picked me up every day. We, we trained, went to the gym, and then did the show in the evening. And I did that for like 10 months straight. It was the best time of my life. But also the trainers at that time, Norman Smiley. Man, I learned so much from him. Uh, Dusty Rhodes, I, I cannot say enough good things about Dusty. I'm sure you had many, many conversations with him also. Just, he helped me out with, with so much, like character development. And um, Steve Kern helped me out with so much. Huge fan of his too growing up. Uh, Dr. Tom Pritchett also. In, in my 20 years, even all, even though all the stuff I learned from my dad and through the years of traveling and stuff like that, I think I learned more from Dr. Tom 
in that one year than I did my whole entire life. You know, just like little backstage things that that you never would think of of coming growing up in the business or like you know like just for for example like the first thing you say when you meet Vince McMahon or like uh, what kind of direction you take the conversation in and stuff like that. So very very thankful for that era in FCW when when. Um, Dr. Tom and Steve Kern and Dusty Rhodes was there. It's funny. I speak to a lot of guys who have gone through that, and you, you, I ask them the same question. And it's, it's, you know, it's not a coincidence. You hear the same names: Dusty Rhodes, Norman Smiley, Steve Kern, Dr. Tom Pritchard have have made uh, have etched themselves on so many careers. It's really unbelievable. By the way, I've never met Vince McMahon. So, what is the first thing you say when you meet Vince McMahon? <laughs> oh, it's a funny story. I didn't say anything, but uh, Dr. Tom was like, "Yo, when you go into his office." make sure your shoes are shined. And I just looked at him, I was like, what kind of advice is that? That's stupid. Like that, he's like, and he just kind of like walked away, but he always said like little things like that. And then years later, you know, like something would happen and I'd be like, oh, okay, that's what he meant. Like, oh, the, yeah. And I, I remember walking into his office and I had the, the suit on and my shoes were shined and he just looked at my shoes and he kind of looked at me and he smiled. And <laughs> the, the, the instantly it clicked in my head. I was like, yeah, everything Dr. Tom says has a meaning, like every single little thing. So like I went back and multiple things like that happened. Like uh, another example, like I think my knee pads didn't match my kick pads at the time and then said something. He just, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't like mad or like he didn't say anything negative or anything, but he just made a comment on it. And I remember like trying to sort that out and, it, you know, the, 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 the ladies making my gear took a couple of weeks extra and it was like two pay-per-views later or whatever and I had them match the knee pads and the kick pads and Vince like walked up to me and he just pointed to me and he goes thank you and I mean it was just like <laughs> little 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 things like that yeah that's a, that's cool thank you for sharing that um, so you were on the very first NXT uh, show I guess it was a show was it its own show I, I had a struggle to remember was it its own show yes. at the time? Uh, it was. Uh, so, funny story. It was supposed to be like a real reality show. Like, remember the Ultimate Fighter, the UFC version? Sure. It was supposed to be exactly like that. They were going to put us in this house, and it was we were going to compete, quote unquote, you know, for. <laughs> and uh, I guess time ran out, and at that time they were just starting doing shows on, like live shows on the West Coast, I guess, because of the time difference. And so, like, NXT was filmed before Raw or SmackDown, I forget, or maybe both. And we had to go live on air with zero script, no plan, like nothing. We had zero direction. Many people don't realize this, but, like, yeah, the promos were unscripted. That's why they were so bad. A lot of the matches were just, like, thrown together within two minutes, unscripted. And I think we messed it up so bad that from season two and three, they completely scripted the whole show, but made it into, like, a, a wrestling show. But, the, yeah, the initial idea was for it to be, like, a, a real reality show it's ironic you say that because in my notes here of questions i wrote nxt memories dot 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 seem booked on the fly <laughs> <laughs> yep it, it completely was completely i i can tell you a story too just one day where um i did a two-segment match it was me and my pro matt hardy against uh, darren young and cm punk and i remember we, we were given instructions of seven minutes um, I hit my comeback, straight comeback into my finish uh, and then go home. And I remember it being live on TV and the referee, I could just see his eyes like pop and he's like, yo, this is coming straight from Vince. And I hit the whole comeback and he goes, he goes, yo, just miss the finish and we're going to go to break and come back with five more minutes. 
Now I've already hit all my best stuff, my whole comeback, all my falsies, everything. And I was just like, oh man, what do we do now? But somehow, obviously, we had Matt Hardy in there and CM Punk, and somehow we pulled off a great match and we came to the back. And Vince was just like, yeah, that's that was just me testing you guys, and you guys did great. So that's where I kind of got my respect from Vince. Oh wow! So, did, did, were you guys told ahead of time about like eliminations and all that, or did you just found out on the fly when they announced it? On the fly, that was all on the fly. Even my name that was on the fly because initially I was in FCW. I was just an angel, and like when I came out to the ring for my first match, I guess they changed it to Justin Gabriel because Vince was friends with Chris Angel, and he, he thought it was too gimmicky for a reality show. Um, yeah, so a lot of the things we found out on the spot. That's funny. Uh, good stuff. So June 7, 2010, not a lot of people would remember uh, anything big happened in that night. I'll, I'll never forget. I thought it was one of the greatest angles uh, I had ever seen, and that's saying something. I actually texted Art Anderson, who's a, a, a good friend of mine, and I said, that was tremendous. I hope you guys could follow it up. And for those who forget, that's when uh, NXT attacked Cena and I think CM Punk. And, and, and what made it really, what I thought made it really cool was he just didn't announce the re- uh, attack the wrestlers or the referees he attacked you, you, they laid out everyone the camera people and the uh and the announce team and the ring announcer and the bell guy and totally took the set apart it just looked it looked like it was legit like a bunch of young guys getting pissed off and saying enough is enough which is what wrestling is supposed to be that you know you, you, you want to believe what's going on uh what did you think about that angle at the time uh, it was great. I mean, we didn't know what to expect at all. Um, we got our direction directly from Vince. He called us into the office. He was like, this is what you guys are going to do. And we all kind of looked at each other and we're like, uh, yeah, okay, if that's what you want. <laughs> I mean, we've ne- we we couldn't picture it. We've never seen that in wrestling. And as you know, from what being in the business yourself for a long time, uh, it's very hard to come up with different unique storylines. You know, everything's kind of recycled or sure. been done before or a version of it. So at that time it was very unique. So we couldn't like really go back and pull inspiration from somewhere else. So we were like, yeah, okay, we'll just, I guess this is what we'll do. And yeah, and it came off great. People raved about it. Um, in the WWE too, like many people don't realize this at all. Like the backstage guys, there's people that have been working there for 25 to 30 years. You know, like, and they've seen the same stuff over and over. And I, I, I realized that we were doing something special when all those guys came up to us and be like, and they were like, wow, that was some cool shit. I've never seen that in my life. And uh, yeah, that's, that, that's where it started in Miami. I'll never forget that day either. It was so fun. So fun. And I got to hit the 450 on live TV too, which is fantastic, which, uh, uh, I'll be thankful for to Cena forever because like at that time, you know, like they were kind, kind of cutting back on a lot of dangerous moves and he insisted that I, that I hit that towards the end of that uh, invasion or attack or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I thought it was awesome. It was like a, it was like you took your, they took the standard wrestling quote unquote angle and they like, put, you know, exemplified it by a hundred thousand percent and and you know really made it seem like it was the the real deal and and that's i love i always i talk about on this podcast a lot about or stuff in wrestling that's organic that just happens and that seemed to be something that was organic and uh to me you can't beat an organic angle uh for instance what kofi kingston's uh going through right now with uh you know thrust into the main event and now uh you know he's 
he's a world title contender. That's totally organic. They didn't plan that two weeks ago. That was just done on the fly, and he got it over. So I always think that stuff yep. is cool. Um, do you think they were taken aback by how much it got over? Because they didn't really seem to have that much. I mean, they did have a storyline follow-up, but it seemed like they were, like again, booking on the fly. Do you think that they were taken aback, or was there a long-term angle uh, that was planned? There was, there was, and I don't want to go too much into this, but it was the backstage politics, one guy in particular, and I mean, obviously you can probably figure out who that was, that was kind of like scared for his spot at the time, you know, and then he, at the time he wasn't putting people over, and he kind of, he was kind of like, all the young talent that was coming up, he was kind of suppressing, um, and yeah, it was mainly because of that, like, yeah, I mean, the whole run didn't even last a year, like, we didn't even get a WrestleMania moment, I mean, I'm sure they had a bunch of plans and storylines like going forward, especially Vince, because that came straight from Vince. It didn't come from anyone else. Um, and then, yeah, once once we lost that match at SummerSlam, the, the big one, I think I feel like the momentum was just crushed. And then right after that, they were like, yeah, Vince kind of like just gave it to one of the writers. And he's like, yeah, just do with that whatever you want. And then, yeah, then it was. I feel like that was the end of it, the beginning of the end. <laughs> And that's a shame, but you know, I, I come from WCW where egos got in the way on a daily basis, so I, I understand your pain. But that that is a shame. You got your WrestleMania moment though in Atlanta. Uh, I like to ask uh, uh, talent who uh, who have been in WrestleMania what it was like to be at their first WrestleMania, the Georgia Dome in Atlanta. Uh, any memories of, of of that experience? Yes, quite a few actually. Uh, we were in I think it was an eight ta- eight man tag. Uh, we were at, we were me and Heath were actually tag team champions too for the third time, which is which is a great memory. The match didn't last too long, so it was over very quickly. But it was kind of cool because I, as I walked in, I could take in everything. Uh, another 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 cool memory that I have of that is that was the first time that my mom's ever seen me live. Like oh, wow. growing up, obviously my mom was married to a wrestler, so she knows the business and she hated it. She hated wrestling so much. She told me that I'll never make money in wrestling and blah, blah, blah. That's why I went to college, got my degree to make her happy. But then uh, I flew her to Atlanta and that was the first time she watched me live and it was at WrestleMania and she was just like, wow, this is this is cool. And ever since that day, she became the biggest wrestling fan ever. She's like online every day, like searching Googling every single character, like she knows all the storylines now. She she loves it. Like she knows the matches that I have this weekend before I know it. She's like, <laughs> oh wow, you're in Toronto this weekend. So that was that was a really cool memory for me. That is awesome. That's one of the that, that's one of the most fun I've heard. Uh, congratulations for that. That's a cool story. So Thanks. you you guys formed a team called the Core. And after the core broke up, uh, not really a lot for you. Uh, I did want to ask. Uh, you, there was supposedly, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, an angle where you're gonna, you were the bunny, or you're gonna be the bunny with, uh, with Adam Rose. Uh, did, was that something that just never went anywhere, or, or, well, what's the story yeah. behind that? Before I get to that, though, I'll tell you about the core angle. So we we turned into the core, and they had big plans for us, but they never gave us any direction. And every time we got to the back. The head right at the time was like, why didn't you guys do this? I'm like, well, you guys didn't really tell us to do this. We were still kind of stuck in that in that nexus mentality of what what to do that we could just do whatever, you know. Um, but anyway, so I think I think I beat Edge. Edge was Edge retired the uh, world heavyweight champion. He retired. And the last match that he lost on TV was actually against me. 
So that's that's that stat someone tweeted the other day too, and I was like, oh yeah, that's actually a pretty good stat. That was in the in the middle of the core days, and then yeah, right after that it was kind of like downhill. But uh, yeah, once the core disassembled, uh, I was kind of like trying to push me as a baby face, and I'm a terrible baby face. It's just because I could do some fancy moves. They thought I'd be a good baby face, and it kind of didn't go anywhere. So you know, I, every week I do I worked on some different character stuff and like pitched a bunch of storylines different things. I even went back to NXT to work on some stuff with Dusty right before he passed. Um, and then, yeah, the bunny thing came along and I was like, okay, I'm not doing anything. So let me, let me do this. And it, the bunny was played by multiple different people, but they wanted someone to do a bunch of cool, like high spots and high flying moves with a suit on. And I was like, yeah, of course I can do that. That's easy. Okay. Cause I wanted to eventually get the bunny to hit like a full 50 and become this like crazy high flyer, hardcore champion. Which yeah, which also never happened. We pitched a bunch of storylines for that too, which I could, well, I could, I'll take twenty minutes to tell you all those. But uh, yeah, so like, uh, it was just a, an idea. And it was a bunch of ideas thrown around. And it, yeah, it just didn't go anywhere. Like every week, it felt like we got somewhere. Like the bunny did. Like Vince specifically wanted me to just do one or two fancy things and kind of like build it up to this big high spot, I guess, hitting the four fifty in the in the bunny costume which we never got to. And yeah, that's another storyline that just got K botched out of nowhere. And then they tried to start it up again. And then, you know, it didn't have the momentum that it did. And Adam Rose didn't have the momentum he, he had in NXT because he was one of the biggest superstars ever in that era in NXT. And, you know, like, and then they kind of realized that the NXT stage was a little bit smaller and people got over doing different things. And once they pulled him up onto the main roster, it was a completely different scenario, you know? Um, yeah, it was a very, but I feel like it was a learning curve for NXT management. You know, like they're doing a much, much better job today. I don't like to see the bunny hit that 450. Were you, were you going to like come out of the suit or you're just going to be the bunny hitting 450s every night? So there was a bunch of different, different uh, storylines that we pitched for this. Um, they wanted to eventually reveal the bunny as someone. And I think Jeff Hardy was coming back. Bubba Ray was coming back. Kurt Angle was coming back. Those were the three top names they, they turned, put into the hat. Um, it, I mean, it, it could, you could have been me also, but like one day I pitched events, I was like, no, like if, if, if the bunny's head comes off and he, and it's anybody, everyone else would be like, oh, wow, that's cool. Um, the only person that it can be that would make an impact was if it was Vince and he's like okay tell me more so I was like imagine this the bunny becomes like the hardcore champion but he never wins anything right he becomes like this hardcore bunny where he falls off ladders and he does all these crazy flips to the outside you know but he becomes grizzled and disgruntled he becomes like he gets like dark fur maybe there's like dried blood on his fur which they didn't go for because it wasn't the attitude era if it was the attitude era it would have totally worked <laughs> in the PG era, this wouldn't have worked. But imagine, like, so this bunny goes to, you know, and then maybe there's a shot of him backstage smoking a cigar, you know, like <laughs> sip, sipping a martini, but he's just, like, dirty and just, just angry and disgruntled, you know, and he goes out for this one last match and maybe he gets hurt and the referee throws up the X and it cuts to this backstage segment where they have to take off the, the bunny's head and it fits. <laughs> and Vince was like, why, why the hell would I do that? I was like, Cause I'm a, if I was a crazy billionaire, that's what I would do. And that's the only thing that would get people talking about the bunny. But yeah, that, that, that also <laughs> obviously didn't happen. That would have been good stuff, man. Uh, bunny drinking a martini. I love it. Uh, speaking, of, <laughs> speaking of Adam Rose, I know he's from uh, South Africa as well. You guys stay in touch? We do, we do. Um, I, 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 
I actually met him. So my dad had two at a wrestling school also, right? Which was in our in our backyard. We lived in this massive piece of land where we had two wrestling rings in the back. So every day after school, I would come back and and train and just you know run the ropes and just and then uh, this kid jumped over the fence because he saw there was a wrestling ring and he was. Um, I think I was 15 at the time. He was 19 or 20. And uh, we just became friends because now I had someone to practice moves on and we just started doing matches together and we actually became a tag team for years. We were a tag team in South Africa and, you know, like we kind of split up. I went to the UK and he kind of did his own thing. He kind of quit wrestling then started back up and then he quit again because he saw I was actually doing stuff internationally. And then once I got signed, he, you know, he, he hasn't been wrestling for like two years, but I was like, bro, just, just come do a tryout. Cause like he was, he's a more super talented guy. And about two or three years after I got signed, he got signed too, which I was very thankful for. What's he up to now, if you don't mind me asking? He um, he kind of kind of started back up wrestling again. He uh, he has a, he has a family, you know, so he has a wife and two kids that he takes care of. He um, I just saw that maybe two or three months ago that he started making towns again in the independent circuit in, in Florida, down in Florida where he lives. Um, you know, getting in good shape again and I don't know if he's trying to do one more run perhaps or whatever it is but I, you know I'm just trying to support the guy and send some positive vibes his way and I'll try and help him out wherever I can I mean he's a super talented guy he's a little, little bit older than me and you know our body's kind of like it's like catching up to us but he's looking good he's in good shape and uh, he's in good spirits which and you know and he's, he, you know he started young like me so it's in his blood yeah, you ain't kidding. He was uh, not to get off on a tangent on Adam Rose, but he was over in NXT for sure. Uh, and that ha- and that has to be frustrating to be that over in, in say one territory, then you get promoted to the big territory, and it doesn't quite work out that way. Uh, and and I'd love to actually get him as a guest to to talk about that sometime. But uh, that has to be frustrating for sure. Um, do you still see that? You said they're doing a better job of 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 promoting the guys from NXT. Do you still see some guys that get caught in the, caught in the, the politics? Oh, always. I mean, that's always going to happen. It's, it's, this is wrestling. It's going to happen. It's inevitable, but I mean, they're doing a much better job with a transition now, as you can see. And I, I feel like NXT has become its own unique brand. It's, it's not so much a developmental territory. Obviously it is, but the, the actual brand that the pay-per-views they run is a complete separate brand which I think is, is fantastic right now. Like, what a, what a great product. Yeah, I saw Ricochet got called up along with a couple other guys, um, and I kind of cringe because, you know, you only get a first chance to make a first impression sometimes, and uh, and and the, I think the guy is extremely talented and, and charismatic, and I just hope I hope some of those guys that, uh, that could be uh, really big, uh, I hope it, it goes good for them. I always sort of sort of cringe when they get called up because you just never know if they're going to become the next AJ Styles or nothing nothing against it but the next Adam Rose right exactly I, same thing I mean he's super talented uh, what a great kid too fantastic athlete you know like you said charismatic he's got he checks all the boxes I think they'll do something with him because he's, he's got a great attitude but, you know like as you know backstage work rate and attitude plays a huge part in how far you go in the business um, but it's also just being at the right time at the right place. I feel like he'll do good. He, you know, he has a lot of backstage support, like guys like Arn Anderson and guys like that, who, who was also a huge fan of me, by the way. Um, guys like that, that, that 
that plays a huge part in, in a guy's career like that. But yeah, you never know. We never know. I, I feel like um, right now we live in this era too where AJ was the exception. Other than AJ, think about who was the next guy that, that came up and just got a huge push like that. Other than Roman Reigns, think about the Roman Reigns and Seth Rollins and the new performance center, right? Who They haven't made any stars yet except for Braun Strowman. Think about that for a second. The, all the guys that are that are making names for themselves right now had huge names on the independent circuit. So the Performance Center hasn't produced any talent as of yet, but it's still a good brand. So they're doing something something right there. And you know, eventually they will produce some names. It's not like the power plant, which where they produce many, many names. Um, but yeah, let, time will tell. I feel like we also live in this era where and this is a main reason, I don't know if he's going to get mad at me for saying this, but one of my good friends, too, that's why he quit. He was in the Nexus with me because Hunter and Vince told him that they don't ever want a marquee name ever again. You know, like WrestleMania sells out before any matches are announced because it's a, it's a brand. It's not so much like in the old days where the name, the Hulk Hogan versus Under the Giant, sells out the building. And I think that's what WWE wants. And that's where they're making a, a big mistake, in my opinion, um, by just letting the brand sell itself, you need big stars. You need you need big names to sell out big arenas, especially like the live events and stuff like that. But then again, that that's just my opinion. No, I, I agree with you, and uh, it's interesting that you say that because on one hand, I see that I could see Vince and, and Triple H and those guys saying we want WWE to be on the marquee, and then uh, but then they bring in like a Ronda Rousey or they push down uh, everybody's throats a Roman Reigns, so it's almost like they're fighting within themselves what they really want. Right, exactly, and I feel like maybe that's an internal struggle between Vince and Hunter. Maybe um, I feel like Vince does still has an old school mentality and a completely different way and obviously you can see that he's still in charge in many ways but like Hunter is in charge of NXT and probably Smackdown right now too so you can kind of see that and whenever there's an internal struggle and that that's what kind of happened with, with me too because Vince liked me and Hunter not so much so I feel like this is what happened in the in the, in the meeting just before the show okay what are we going to do with this kid I want him to do this the other, the other person was like no no let's do, let's save him for this let's not do him Let's not do this with him. Uh, okay, we spend too much time on this kid. Let's move on to the next guy. And, you know, like they have so much talent. Like what are they, like 100 superstars on Roman SmackDown right now? It's hard for every single person to have a unique storyline. That's what I liked about the, the Attitude Era. You know, like if everyone had creative freedom and every single character had its own storyline. I feel like maybe there's like there's too much going on right now because I have, they have what, like two brands that run three hours live on TV and all the other little shows in between. I think a lot of guys just get lost in the shuffle. It's hard for me to follow. I DVR it and sometimes fast forward to it, but I don't. I don't really watch it as a, a on a regular basis. But yeah, I mean that's the, and, that, and that is the struggle uh, is, is keeping everybody relevant uh, for sure. Uh, you know, look, we had the same problems in WCW. You had the 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 young guys, the Jerichos and the Benoits and the uh, Eddie Guerreros, and and you know you had the the millionaires that were you know quote unquote whole them down. It probably was the same type of conversation as you just talked about with uh, with Triple H and Vince in the production meeting. But you know, this time they're talking about an Eddie Guerrero or uh, or a Chris Jericho. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. Unfortunately, in the ego driven uh, business, so it's just sad, I guess. But 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 we get back to what I think the point you were making is to get back to the word organic. And back in the Attitude Era, they just let things happen, and if it caught on, they went with it. You know? Right, exactly. And that's what's missing in wrestling, in my opinion, right now. 
because like everything is so micromanaged right now. You know, there's an agent, backstage producer, there's two writers, you know, like attached to your little segment. And then, you know, there's not enough freedom. I mean, some, to a certain extent, some of the guys, obviously the top guys, uh, will have more freedom than others. But it's still, it's to get there, it's such a struggle. You know, like an attitude era, like, you know, I mean, how great was that? Like, everyone just kind of like did their own thing. And yeah, like you said, something stuck and they just went with it. Like, right now, it's very hard to find that thing that sticks to within the, the PG parameters. Um, you know, it's, they, they, they keep telling you, reach for the brass ring, like, get yourself over, stand out, do this. But whenever you try to do something, like, don't do that, don't do that. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure it's frustrating. I can't even imagine. And, you know, just one more thing about that uh, organic stuff. I could I'm, I don't know if this is true or not, but I could imagine a conversation in the back like, uh, uh, you know, months ago where uh, Rusev uh, went up to say Triple H or, or Vince and said, hey, we're, we got this idea for a Rusev Day thing. We, we think it may sell some T-shirts and Vince probably wasn't even listening or whoever and said, all right do it you know and 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 who would have ever thought that the, that it got over like huge but uh i i just just doesn't seem to me like that was something that the writers came up with it just sounds like something that happened and the fans went with it would you think so right i think so too i, I mean picturing it right now I, the boys probably just made jokes in the back and they just kept saying that over and over and kept like saying it's Rusev Day, maybe in the locker room, and like maybe that's what caught on. Maybe the fans heard of it, or one of the writers heard of it, and they're like, "Yeah, let's do this." That's that's probably what happened. <laughs> it's funny. Some of the organic stuff that happens starts in the locker room. It's like a rib or something. I've been there. I've seen it. It's uh, it, I, I'm just a big fan of that, and uh, don't want to go on too much. Hey, um. Wanted to ask you about one more person because we talked about uh, how hard it is to to jump from uh, NXT to D WWE. One guy who is uh, doing a pretty good job now, uh, Drew McIntyre, who came back, who had left like you, came back, went to NXT, and getting a pretty big push now with the uh, WWE. When well, I know that you mentioned recently on another uh, podcast that. You had an offer from NXT to go back that uh, uh, along with Ring of Honor, and you chose Ring of Honor. Did you put any thought in the fact that maybe if you go back, you could pull a quote-unquote Drew McIntyre? Oh, I did. I, I thought about this long and hard. Trust me. I thought about this for for quite a few weeks, actually. And ROH gave me, I told them about it, too, which they were very thankful for me being open with them because a lot of the other guys weren't open with them. Let's start their own company. I'm sure you can figure out who that is. But anyway, <laughs> um, I, I thought about it. And, you know, I, as, as appealing as that was, because, you know, my friends like Ricochet and all these guys in NXT, I know I can have fantastic matches with them. And, you know, I, I know I can prove to Hunter to like, that I can be, I feel like the NXT guys are like Hunter's kids. And so that's why he would rather push them on the main show than people who came, came before them. I feel like, I don't know, I might be wrong in that, but I, yeah, so like, I definitely thought about it. I was like, okay, cool, I can go there, prove, you know, but then again, the ROH thing came came along and financially it just made more sense. Plus, I told you that my goal, uh, ever since I was a little kid, was New Japan and ROH works with New Japan, so I feel like there's something big I can do there. And the deal isn't too long and the deal is very, 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 
I wouldn't say lax, but very open to both sides. You know, like if, if, if I wanted to get out, they would let me get out. They're not very as strict as many of the other companies. So, you know, like financially it made sense for merchandise royalties. It completely made sense more than it, more than WWE ever did, you know? And I feel like I'm still growing. Like I said to you earlier on, I feel like I, I'm maybe, maybe two, three, four years away from, from my peak. And I feel like that's when I'll, I'll, I'll hit up, uh, WWE NXT, but and a lot can happen in one year. You know this. In sure. the business, like it, it keeps on evolving, and I love that it evolves all the time. Like, and as a character, as a performer, you have to evolve with it, otherwise you get left behind. And longevity is the key in this business. I feel like that's again my opinion because if you look at guys like Chris Jericho, look at him. He just got like a massive, massive offer, and when that is done, who knows what's going to happen? He can go back to WWE, he can go back to New Japan, whatever it is. And I feel like. Uh, so coming back to your question, yes, I, I thought about this long and hard, and I was very, very close to, to taking the NXT deal. But then I was like, okay, ROH is trying something different. They, they're throwing a lot of money around and, you know, like trying to clean up their product. And now that we sold out Madison Square Garden, I feel like Sinclair is like, oh, wow, okay, maybe we should take this seriously. So they, they've been trying a lot of different things. And, you know, WWE has been trying to sign uh, Bandito and Rush for for a long time and, and the fact that both of them chose ROH over all the other deals they got that, that and, and myself including uh, that has to show you that the ROH has uh, got some big plans for this year so I, I, I definitely feel like I made the right choice on that you know WWE's not going to go anywhere wrestling's not going to go anywhere um Get me on the podcast again in a year from now, and I'll, I'll promise you so many things would have probably changed. Yeah, it's a deal, and you're right. Uh, speaking of your future, are, are you still base jumping, or did you give that up? Um, I haven't completely given it up. I haven't jumped yet. I'm back in the sky skydiving. Uh, skydiving is pretty safe. Um, if I do get, I will go back to base jumping. I'll do one or two, three more jumps. I'm not going to be. I'm not going to pursue it as aggressively as I did. Um, I just want to not quit because I, I, I'm not a quitter. I never quit anything. You know, I don't want to be like, oh, I quit because I got hurt. Not, you know, to, like not, those. not to cut you off, but explain uh, for people who may not know what base jumping is versus uh, parachute and stuff like that. Okay. Parachuting, skydiving out of a plane, you jump from 13,000 feet. So you have like 60 seconds of free fall time. If you fall on your belly and a wingsuit, you get two, three minutes. You know, if you free fly, you get like 45 seconds. So there's a lot of time. Once you pull a parachute, you have a backup too. So you have two, three minutes if anything goes wrong to to figure that out. Base jumping, there is no backup. There is no, it's, it's base is actually an acronym. It stands for building, antenna, span, and earth. Those are the four fixed objects that we jump off with a parachute. And a parachute extracts very quickly and it opens very aggressively and quickly because you're close to the ground, which makes it way more dangerous than skydiving. But you need to be really good at skydiving. You need, you need two, three, four hundred jumps to even make it to base jumping. Um, and base jumping is also illegal in the U.S., so <laughs> people travel overseas for that. There's one, I think there's one bridge in the U.S. that it's legal. And there's another bridge in West Virginia, which they make it legal one day a year, and all the base jumpers from around the world come jump at this bridge. So you broke both of your feet twice, correct? Yes, sir. So the first time you break your both of your feet after after a bad landing, and you say, oh, "Lesson learned, son of a gun." But what was going through your mind after the second time? I mean, what are the chances of that? I don't even. Maybe in base jumping, it's a good chance. I don't know. Right, and base jumping is a pretty good chance. The first time was just a rookie mistake. I was very new. I kind of 
bit of downwind landing and there wasn't much, there wasn't a lot of outs, uh, you know, places that I could have landed if the wind picked up to the left or the right. And that's what, that's what intrigues me about base jumping. It's a very, very calculated sport. Like people think we're just a bunch of yahoos just chasing adrenaline and jumping off shit. But it's actually very calculated. We work out the weather, the wind, you know, like I know if my parachute opens 90 degrees to the left, I'm going to go land. And that's my A landing, my B landing, my C landing. If it, if it happens to open 90 degrees to the right or even just, you know, like I, we make so many calculations. It takes it takes weeks and weeks to prep one jump. Um, so the second time, I think I just came back too quickly. My bones weren't completely healed. And my whole life, I've always chosen not to have surgery. So I didn't have the surgery, which I probably should have. Uh, so the second time, I, it wasn't a hard landing. I actually struck the building. My, my parachute opened at like a 90-degree angle, and there was a, a satellite dish hanging in front of me. And uh, one of my lines got hooked in the satellite dish, and I just kept striking the building all the way down, um, which uh, my, probably my leg and my finger got broken somewhere <laughs> in the multiple hits. Um, but yeah, it was that was pretty bad. It was a... The right break was so bad that they had to completely reconstruct the the, the joint, my ankle joint. I have multiple, multiple titanium plates, about 23 screws, and they had to completely restructure my ankle. And if you look at my ankle, it's twice the size of the, the other one because of all the hardware I have in there. And the doctors told me that I probably will never wrestle again, I'll never work out again. And that's when I was like, man, I'm going to show these guys. So, you know, now I'm back to 100%. I mean, it took two or three years for me to get back to where I am right now. But, uh, yeah, it's like mind over matter, right? It's like I, I, when I was in the hospital for six months, I had a lot of time to think about stuff. And it took me another, it took me about 10 months before I could, I had to relearn how to walk. And that's when I decided, I was like, okay, I'm going to push my body as far as I can, get as healthy as I can, get physically the stronger that I've ever been, uh, mentally and spiritually stronger than I've ever been. And, you know, I, I wouldn't be this strong. I wouldn't have had this mindset if that didn't happen. Like it was the worst thing that happened to me in my life, but it was also the best thing that ever happened to me in my life because I would never have mentally been this strong if that didn't happen. Wow. What? I can't even imagine that you're still considering doing it again, but God bless you, man. Uh, but but that's a that's a heck of a story. Uh, so much I didn't know that that we've uh, gotten to find out about you. That's not hey you know Wikipedia doesn't doesn't tell everything. That's why we do this podcast, I guess. Um, one last question I wanted to ask you. You went to you were. In, <laughs> I know it doesn't. It doesn't. One last question I wanted to ask you. Uh, you were in Lucha Underground. Uh, tell me about that experience. I've not watched it. Uh, I've been told that it's unlike anything that's ever happened in the business before as far as uh, soap opera and science fiction and stuff like that. Uh, did you enjoy it? And there's been a lot of uh, uh, questions about different contracts that people sign. I know there's some people that are still having trouble getting out of their contracts. Uh, uh, how did that work and where does yours stand? I'm assuming since you're a Ring of Honor and you had an NXT deal that you got out of it but uh i've heard yes. i've heard some stories that uh that there's been some people that are still kind of caught yep and so let's start there then um i i in my heart i i feel like it's not gonna go anywhere uh, which i'm very sad about because it was fantastic in my 20 years of wrestling it was probably the most fun i've ever had other than the fcw experience uh robert rodriguez he's a he's a mad genius i've 
respected this guy. I mean, he's a director. If you've seen any of his films, you can Google him. Like uh, any of the stuff that he's done, I'm a, I'm a huge, huge fan of. Like he, he makes cult classics. So the, the vision he had with this was just fantastic. <clears throat> it wasn't like a like a wrestling show at all. It was a it was a TV show, and it just had some wrestling on. Um, which yeah, you you need to check it out if you, if you get a chance. It's really really entertaining, and that's it, cool too because we we were doing like, instead of wrestling festivals, we were doing movie festivals where people would come up to us because it's people that are fans of like Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones, like actual TV shows who became fans of this, who had no clue of wrestling. You know, like I was walking down in the arts district in, in, in Los Angeles the other day and this, this hipster came up to me and was like, oh wow, you're the kid from that, you're the character from that uh, wrestling show. They don't know anything about wrestling. And I, I ended up having a, an hour-long conversation with this guy, and he, he became a wrestling fan because of Lucha Underground, because he started watching Netflix shows like Game of Thrones and Breaking Bad, and he was intrigued by the, the, the sci-fi aspect of it, and also like the wrestling. So he started studying like Lucha Libre, and then he became a fan of WWE because of that show, which which I think is fantastic. And I hear stories of like that all the time because we used to wrestle these and go to these like movie conventions and comic cons and, and stuff like that. So it, it's kind of cool to know that we made wrestling fans from that show. And it was, it was a completely different show. I, I loved it. It was so much fun. And what a great locker room. And because it was a TV show, it was, it was shot like a movie, you know? So it was like being on set. It wasn't like being at TV, which I'm sure you're familiar with and going to live events was completely different and had a different feel to it. It was it was just a it was just a fun time. But coming back to the contract issues, I I don't think that it was going to come back, which makes me very sad. So I was kind of proactive on that, and I tried. I fought really hard to get out of my contract, which took a lot of lawyers and phone calls and emails and blah blah blah. But I was very lucky enough to get out of it, and uh, most of the other guys are not so lucky. They're struggling very hard. But by the looks of it, a lot of the guys are just kind of like doing their own thing because they kind of have a feeling that it's not going to come back up just just like I did, which again is very bad because that's it's such a such a great product. I think I have to watch it. I and I've had this conversation a couple times, and then I never do because things get life gets in the way. But I definitely want to uh, take a look at it. I'll never forget about four years ago uh, I did WrestleCon and. Um, Geez, where were I? Was I? Uh, I think it was up in the Meadowlands, where it is, uh, where New York City, where it is uh, this year, and um, and so you know, I was next to Justin Roberts, and you know, we're signing some autographs and talking to some people. Nasty boys were on the other side of me, and I see a line that's just like around the entire room. I there was obviously there's there's no nobody had any idea that this line was going to be that long for this person, or they'd put him in a corner. You know how these wrestling conventions go, but it was right. just I mean, uh, these people saw. So I walked up to the people in the line because they were right by our table, and I said, "I said, who is the line? Who, who are you standing in line for?" I expected Sting or Shawn Michaels. It was Pentagon, and we yeah. na- we now know that Pentagon is one of the hottest indie names, you know, uh, and and one of the hottest Mexican names based on Lucha Underground. But that was when I had, I was like Penta what? I had never heard of them, but there was hundreds of people, if not thousands, lined up four or five years ago to get a picture with this guy. And so, obviously, what you're just backing up your what you're saying about creating fans, and uh, and yeah, I'll take a look at it for sure. So, uh, any any word about New Japan Pro Wrestling, or is that a TBD? Yeah, um, we'll see. I mean, I've been been in talks with them a little bit here and there, and obviously their partners with ROH. So I feel like. It's just a matter of time. Um, nothing set in stone yet. Um, 
you know, I mean, I guess we'll see. There's a, there's a bunch of cool things happening, you know, and they have the, the, the Madison Square Garden show. There's a lot of tours and the G1 that's going on right now, but they already have most of those things booked. But then again, there's a lot of people injured right now and there's a lot of people out right now. So there, there's some spots opening. Um, and I only officially start with ROH on the 16th of March in Vegas next month and in a couple of weeks, I guess. So um, I guess once I get there, I can you know, discuss and talk to some more people and, and take it from there. Yeah, it's not like they haven't heard. I had a bunch of turnover uh, at New Japan Pro Wrestling as far as the the uh, American talent. Uh, and what, right. what are, speaking of that, real quickly, what are your thoughts on uh, on the guys that started All Elite Pro Wrestling? What do you think their chances are? Um, who knows? It's hard to say. Uh, I, I feel like they have a really good chance because with the guys backing it, the, the guys from the, the NFL team that was it the Jaguars, the Jacksonville Jaguars? Yeah. Obviously, they have a lot of connections. They have the money. <clears throat> I'm sure they have TV deals in place and stuff like that. So, I mean, I, I think I think it'll be great. I really hope that it succeeds. I hope that it creates a huge buzz because it'll it'll be it'll give more options to fans and also to wrestlers. It'll give us more places to go. I feel like if we can somehow create the the Monday Night Wars, if we can somehow create that wars it'll be it'll be huge for, for fans and wrestlers alike so i'm really excited for that i i really hope it does well but yeah this is wrestling and this is kind of a new era and it's completely evolved to what it, what it was so i guess only time will tell you know they, they still haven't run a show yet but they still have a ton of buzz around them i mean they're running their first show in vegas right coming up and that's sold out so obviously that'll put them on the map for sure i'm i'm excited to see what they do for you know, whether I'm involved in it or any of my friends, it, I'm just I'm just very excited for the business as a whole. I'm assuming guys on the indie and gals on the indie scene, uh, you know, are thrilled about the prospects of that that are opening up now because of that happening and Ring of Honor having to replenish and going in and WWE trying to stop people from going in. Obviously, you know, uh, you were in a little bit of a bidding war. I'm assuming that uh, it's a good time to be a pro wrestler. Totally, it's a, it's, a, it's a fantastic time to be a pro wrestler, but it's even a better time to be a fan right now. You know, because fans have options; they don't have to just watch the same three-hour show every week. There's, you know, like all these companies have streaming sites now, and with apps like Fight TV, which streams like most of the independent shows, like fans can choose whatever they want to watch, which I think it's fantastic. I mean, thanks to technology, we were talking about territories earlier on, like where. People can only see certain stars in certain territories. Like right now, like if you want to watch Penta, you can literally just type in Penta's name on the Fight app or YouTube or whatever, and you can can watch him. So, like, uh, I think it's safe to say that we kind of live in a, a cyber territory at the moment. You can even watch Tornado Two against the Pink Panther. How's <laughs> how's that to come full circle? Not bad. I'm going to pat myself on the back a little bit. Uh, <laughs> Very good. I cannot wait to, to defend in this interview. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so I guess uh, I guess I will be seeing you uh, this Saturday in Athens, Georgia, uh, for Universal Championship Wrestling. Speaking of Spike uh, Fight TV, you got to be there, correct? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'll be there um, March second, I believe. Right? Yeah, next Saturday. Um, I got a couple of shows this week. I got like five or six shows coming up this week before I head out for that. So very busy week. Very, very, very busy week. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for your time. I had a blast. You're a class act all the way. And uh, wish you the best of luck. And I'll see you uh, on the road in a couple uh, next week. 
Yes, sir. Thank you so much for your time. I had a great time too, sharing some stories, which I haven't even thought about in years. So <laughs> thanks for pulling that out of me. And uh, yes, I'll see you at the show. I want to thank PJ Black. What a fun interview that was and uh, uh, told some great stories and I knew he would and uh, mentioned that I'm going to see him this Saturday at Clash of the Champions. It is on Saturday, March the 2nd at Aikens Ford Arena at the Classic Center in Athens, Georgia. Big Papa Pump, Scott Steiner, Buddy Buff Bagwell, Wes Briscoe, PJ Black, Taya Valkyrie, Mil Mertis, and others on the card. So if you're in the Atlanta or Athens area, be sure to check that out. It is 7 o'clock on Saturday, March 2nd. Uh, Clash of the Champions. It will be airing uh, not live, but uh, on replay on Fight TV as well. So uh, looking forward to seeing PJ and my old friend Scott Steiner and my good friend Wes Briscoe and the fans in Athens. Uh, Should be a blast. If you don't already, be sure to hit me up on Twitter at David Penzer. You can hit the podcast up at Penzer Ringside. Uh, like interacting on Twitter and uh, got some great feedback from the Buff Bagwell interview. Hopefully we'll get some great feedback from a fun PJ Black interview as well. Until next time, this is David Penzer. I'm still sitting ringside. Follow David Penzer on Twitter at David Penzer. Also make sure to follow the show on Twitter at Penzer Ringside. You've been sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. This is a Landry football with Chris Landry. Quick fix on Radio Influence. How are players invited to the scouting combine in Indianapolis? It's a good question. We have a committee that we we get together in December. We used to do it at the Blue-Gray game when there was a Blue-Gray game. But we get together, and the committee involves personnel directors around the NFL as well as the, as the heads of National Football Scouting and Blesto Scouting, which are the two scouting organizations in the league, which I've worked for both. And what it is, you, you take the grades by position of the top players, and you go through basically a selective process. Go through each position. Yay or nay on these guys, and you go through each position. After you go with everyone, is there anybody else that we are missing that perhaps you have graded high enough or you have graded that you want to see him? And then anybody that nominates anybody, you add them to the list. Okay. Then you go through the next position and the next and the next. You've got to keep the numbers workable. You've got to keep the numbers right at about 350 or so players. You can go up to 375, but you've got to keep it workable. And it's not the best 350, 375 in the country. It's the best with a cutoff point at each position. In other words, you're going to have more numbers at receiver, at corner, because you got more of those players. More players play those positions. But you can't have, for example, 80 receivers and 30 defensive backs. I mean, you can't run drills that way. You don't have a really good field. Now, you don't have to have the equal numbers, but you have to have a cutoff point at each position so that you can get a requisite look at each position fairly in the drills, and then you're getting the requisite number of players that you think are draftable. But when you do that, 
you leave some players off that are worthy, they just don't make the cut at that position. Chris Landry brings you Landry football every week on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and, of course, RadioInfluence.com. 